There's something that we call risk management, risk assessment. When you're making an investment or you're going on a particular endeavor, you want to figure out, uh, is your effort and energy that you put into this investment, effort and energy and perhaps even money that you put in the investment or endeavor, is it going to actually be worth it in the end? Are you going to put in and not get anything out? What is the outcome going to be like? And so you do risk assessment, risk management, right? We know of risky situations. We know of risky business. But in all of our lives, we do risk assessment, whether it's we're entering into relationship. We do risk assessment, whether it's entering into business partnership. Um, And I remember one time, the best way I've ever heard it put, it's kind of a fancy way, risk management, risk assessment. It's a fancy way of saying, is it worth it? But I was hanging out with a buddy of mine and he put it kind of the best way I've ever heard it, right? He used kind of another euphemism, another slang phrase to describe this phrase, is it worth it? And uh, we're sitting in his Cutlass, his Oldsmobile Cutlass. And uh, don't worry, it wasn't like a classic, like a 77 for all of you like gearheads and like love cars. It was like a 97. So it was a piece of junk. So we're sitting in there, we're hanging out and he's talking about whether or not he should go across town to grab something. And as we're talking about it, he goes, yeah, I just don't know if the juice is worth the squeeze. That's a, that's an awesome way of talking about risk management. Is it even worth it for me? If you've ever done ministry alongside of me, most of my staff will know. If you were in my youth group, you would know. I use that phrase often to talk more pragmatically about whether or not something's going to be worth it. Is the juice worth the squeeze? Is what I'm going to put in going to be worth what I get out? And this morning, we're going to look at a new king in the storyline, and it's really kind of a peculiar king. The text doesn't call him a king, but what I want to understand about this particular king is understanding the risk management and the risk assessment that he was doing when Jesus came to earth, when he was born. Because this particular king had an opportunity to either reject or receive Christ the King. And it would have drastically changed the story. But for many of us today, we would consider ourselves the king of our own lives. And this message will confront that in your life. And so I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one located on the seat pocket in front of you. It is not a flotation device, but it will save your life. See what I did there? If you don't have a Bible at home, go ahead and grab that one. Take it home with you. It's a gift. And here's what I promise. Anytime you open that, you will encounter the living God of the universe who created you and wants to have a relationship with you. Okay, so take that Bible with you. Flip swipe, tap your way over to Matthew chapter one, whether it's a physical or digital device. Matthew chapter one, we're going to be reading verses 18 through 25. And before I do that, I kind of want to just tell you a little bit about where we've been. Maybe you're joining us for the first time this morning, or maybe you've been here for the last few weeks and trying to figure out where we've gone. So the first king that we looked at was really three kings. It was the three kings that we call the wise men who came from the east. We, we saw that they were the kings who came from the east because they saw a star. There was a new star in the night sky that they would see and that they would witness. And they were curious about creation. They were wondering about the world. And as they looked out of the universe, they saw this new star and they wondered about it. What is this star? And we looked and saw that they went back to the scriptures and they determined that the star was actually a revelation that this newborn king, the king of the Jews, was supposed to come. The challenge from us that week, for us that week, was to look and to emulate the example of the three kings, the three wise kings who had come from the east. That we would be those who look at the world around us and we have such curiosity about it and we ask such great questions about it that when we ask questions about God's world, that it will lead us actually to God's word and it will lead us to the word of God and his name is Jesus. So that's what we 
we saw in the first week. The next week, we actually look at the wicked king, King Herod. And we saw that whereas we were to emulate the wise kings, we're to reject King Herod and his wicked ways. We saw that he was deceitful and tyrannical, that he took life, whereas Jesus the king actually gives life. And many of us were challenged because a lot of the elements that we saw in King Herod's life, we have to come to grips that we actually, like King Herod, had actually slaughtered the innocent in our sin, slaughtering Jesus on the cross. And that was another challenging message to recognize our own fallenness, our own wickedness, and our own sinfulness. Last week, we actually looked at the worship king, the child, who barely was mentioned in the text itself, whose name is Jesus, and yet who was sought after in worship and was sought after to be killed. And he himself was protected in order that we might be perfected. And so the call from last week's message was to look at the worship king and to actually worship him ourselves. This week, we're going to see whether or not this king is truly worthy and that there's a risk assessment involved. And we see that in none other than Joseph, the adoptive father of baby Jesus. So if you found your place in Matthew 1, I'm going to invite you to stand as I read God's word for us this morning. If you're a guest with us this morning, we stand out of reverence and respect for the word of God, believing that the full, full Bible, all 66 books, are fully breathed out by God for our full life of faith and living. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. Before we jump into this passage, let's just pray together and ask that God would reveal his word to us this morning. Jesus Thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the word. Father, you and I both know that I sin and fall short often of your glory. And yet, Jesus, I thank you that you're my righteousness, that you are the good that I have in my life. And I pray that you would truly exalt yourself among us this morning. Spirit of God, I pray that you would comfort those who are in need of comfort this morning, that you would convict those, Lord, who are comfortable in their life this morning. And Jesus, I pray that you would confront us that we all must assess, Lord, the risk of what it means to be obedient to you. Spirit, I pray that you would fill and empower me now in order to speak clearly and truthfully in accordance with your word for the accomplishment of your will, for the encouragement of this body and the advancement of your kingdom. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. So the big idea or the takeaway from this is that we would understand what risking it all would look like for the worthy king. Risking it all for the worthy king. What does it look like for you in your life to actually risk it all for Jesus? In order to understand this, we have to understand, understand the risks that it would take for Joseph to actually accept, 
rather than reject. If he's going to receive this message that we just read about from this angel, he has a few choices to make. And this is one instance in the entire narrative story. We've been in the book of Matthew chapter two over the last few weeks, and we've seen multiple iterations of him being confronted by the word of the Lord through an angel. There's four separate instances, and this is the very first one. At each of these junctures, where he's confronted by an angel of the Lord in a dream while he sleeps, he's warned and he's challenged and commanded to do something other than would seem natural and seem normal. And the very first thing that we see is that he has to risk embarrassment. Number one, for anyone who would desire to have the worthy king be king of their life, you've got to risk embarrassment. Why? How do we understand this? Verse 18 actually kind of is the key passage to understand, and it, it kind of sets up the entirety of all of the risk that he's going to be assuming throughout this message. It says that the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Many of us who have heard this story may not actually sit and wrestle through the tension that Joseph would have been feeling. Some of us who've grown up in the church and around the church may have heard this story before and we've never considered Joseph and all that it was for him to actually receive this child instead of reject this child. And I want us to understand how much risk he was assuming, but we've got to understand the culture a little bit, like a lot of it actually. So we're going to go on a journey and understand betrothal at this time. There's, there's a couple of things we got to understand. This was while they were betrothed and before they came together. If you have it in your mind that Joseph and Mary were engaged and then like the Holy Spirit and she kind of got pregnant and kind of oops, you're, you're a Westerner. You're totally American. You don't understand the context of what's going on. So I'm going to explain it to you. All right. So there's three aspects of Jewish betrothal that we got to understand in order to wrestle through the tension of the risk that this was for Joseph to actually assume this. Number one, we've got to understand why was this so embarrassing? Again, betrothal, betrothed. The first aspect of Jewish betrothal that we've got to come to grips with is betrothal by money. And for some of us, this might be a little bit scandalous, but I want to help us understand the culture and the heart behind the motivation that would go into this kind of structure, this kind of betrothal system, okay? The way the betrothal worked in these times was that a man would give money to the father of his future wife, the person he had chosen to be his wife, okay? He would give the father money in order to actually, essentially, pay for her to be his wife. Now, some of us, it sounds kind of crass, right? But, but I just want us to think about this for a second. How different that is than the culture that we live in today. The guy would give his future father-in-law money for the daughter, right? I'm just going to say this right now. We definitely don't do this today. But as a dad of four daughters, <laughs> when I was researching this, I was like, oh man, I'd be daddy Warbucks over here. Shoot. I kind of want to reinstate some of that. But the point is for us to actually understand the culture behind this. All right. Some ladies in here, when they hear that, and even, even the dudes in here, we should be like, nah, it's kind of weird. You're paying for your bride. It's not a good look, right? It's very uncomfortable for us to think about that. It's because we don't understand this culture. Typically marriage, um, the Mishnah teaches us during this time, it's rabbinic literature, the Mishnah would teach that usually gals would be essentially bought as a bride around the age of like 13 to 15, and it'd be a few years before they actually consummated the marriage. But for the young men, right, I just want us to consider what this meant for Joseph. You would have saved up 
all of the work money that you had ever gathered, all of the work you'd ever put in, all of the money you'd ever gathered, you would literally be saving and saving and saving and saving and saving. And when there was a young woman who you loved and adored and admired, and you saw the family that she had come from, your heart was warmed towards her, that is when you would actually put down a down payment. A dowry is what, it, what we would kind of associate with this. And, and before we get too like Western in our thought, right? And this is the patriarchy at work, right? Before we start thinking like that, I want to think about how we actually express our love through monetary gifts. If you think about during a dating period, when the guy spends money to take a gal out, right? The gas money, the money for food, money for movie, money for the concert. When you think about how much money goes into that relationship and the investment from the beginning point of dating, all the way through that relationship until the point of engagement. Consider how much money that is, right? And for you young men in here who don't understand this, it should be a sizable portion, all right? You should be spending money on investing in that relationship. But understand in this culture, the way that it worked was you would save all the way up to the point where you would say, I'm going to commit myself to you and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put all of this money down on this relationship. You're mine and I am yours. I am committing to giving myself to you. And one way of showing this affection rather than showing it throughout a dating relationship is showing it right up front in a lump sum saying, I am yours and you are mine. It's an investment. And so for Joseph, we already know that they were betrothed. And this would happen at the beginning of the relationship. And what was also the second aspect, what was also associated with Jewish betrothal, wasn't just the money that he would give. It was also a contract that he would sign. He would come to his future father-in-law and say, I would love to have your daughter's hand in marriage. I would love to court her. I would love to betroth her. I want to be her husband. And the father would say, pay up, right? Show me the money. So he would make it rain. This is second service. Okay, that's good. So as soon as that was done, the father would say, great, let's draft up the contract. There was a legal aspect and a contractual requirement in the law that at the time of betrothal, at that point, they would sign a contract in order that in the future, they would come together to consummate, which was the third aspect of betrothal. But that did not happen sometimes for years, but most often, at least a year or more. At the time that the contract was signed, they were, they were considered husband and wife. So I want you to look at, verse, look at verse 19. It says, and her husband, Joseph. The only way for us to understand this, right, is to understand their betrothal period. You had two aspects that would take place at the beginning point of a relationship. You would put down, down your dowry and you would sign a contract. And during this time period, you would wait all the way up until after the betrothal by contract, after the betrothal by money, until the third aspect, which was betrothal by intimacy. This is what we typically associate, right? We associate, you know, the big tent, the wedding, all the gathering, the party, all of it. That's party time, intimacy, all of that comes afterwards, right? But during this time period, right, I want us to understand how we do this. Money for us is spread throughout the relationship, and then the other two portions, they come at the wedding, we give our vows, we sign the contract. We still have the same elements at play. We just do them in a different order. But I want us to understand, Joseph, from the time he was engaged, betrothed to Mary, he had already laid down all of his monetary investment and he was legally bound to faithfulness. 
and so was she to him. This time period before you were, when you were betrothed by intimacy was actually at your wedding date. But during that time period, there was a long period of time that the Jews actually referred to as Kiddushin. Everybody say it together. Kiddushin. Wow, that was really good. You were, you were supposed to actually experience this Kiddushin in this time period. Most of the time, the bride remained in her father's household during this time where the contract was set up. And that word kiddushin literally means sanctification, which means you're being holified or set apart from one another for one another. The entire purpose of their betrothal period was for them to set themselves aside and apart from everything else in order to become more holy for one another when they entered into marriage. There's some of these aspects that I was reading and I was like, we do this thing the wrong way. Some of you who are engaged, you're already trying to do the intimacy thing the whole entire time. It's no reason why there are so many Christian marriages that dissolve and end up in divorce, just like the culture we live in. Because we, we honestly have become more like our culture over and over and over. But even if we consider all that he would have invested, I want us to understand his emotional state at this time. As I mentioned before, the Mishnah says the gals would be about 13 and 15 when they set up legal contract and the dowry was paid. It'd be years before they ever consummated the marriage, but the man would have typically been 18 years old. 18 years old to 20 years old. They would have been legally bound and they would have invested what would have been their life savings up to that point before they actually consummated the marriage. So you think about where Joseph would have been. These three aspects should give us some understanding. When it says that he was betrothed, it didn't mean that they just had some flippant engagement. The families would have been invested. These are young people we're talking about. The, the families would have been invested. The people around them, their neighbors, everyone would have known. They signed a contract. They're set aside for one another. They're, they're going to get married at some point in the future. Everyone's going to get an invite. We're all going to show up. It's going to be a huge party. Everybody would have known. Everyone within this 18-year-old young boy's life, this young man's life, would have known that he was betrothed. So it says, verse 18, when Mary, his mother, had been betrothed to Joseph, again, before they came together, legally, they're already husband and wife. Before they came together to be married through intimacy, bound by intimacy, they're already bound in these two other ways. It says, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now, before we finish that sentence out, I just want you to sit in that emotional state that Joseph would have been in. Think about that. If you're Joseph, it doesn't say he found out. It doesn't say that others found out. It says that she was found to be with child. What's the implication? It's not only that she's pregnant, but that she's already showing, meaning this is public news. The Galilean culture at this time, from what we know and understand, there would have been no privacy afforded to these two individuals, Joseph and Mary, during this betrothal period. They don't ever get to be alone when they're betrothed. So what do you think Joseph's thinking? And what do you think others may be thinking about Joseph? It's in this environment that all of this is taking place and is being shaped when we consider what it is that he's presented with. 
It says she was found to be with child. That is rough. Even if you remove their cultural context and you put it in our cultural context, if you're engaged and your fiance shows up at a social event and she's got a bump, that's bad news. That's a really rough situation. How are you supposed to explain that to anybody else? How are you supposed to receive whatever she tells you? How are you supposed to explain that to your parents or your friends who think it might be you? And how is she supposed to explain that to you when you think it might be someone else? I don't think, I think sometimes we really just mute the personalities of the people who are in this storyline when we consider Joseph and all of the social pressure and social weight of what it would have been like for him to actually take this on and say, I'm not sure this is worth the risk. And so this is why it's so profound what we see him end up doing. We see Joseph in this situation. I want you to consider for a second what that might have been like. If you've ever lost trust in a friend after finding out how they spoke about you behind your back, maybe, you, maybe you've had a sibling who told some of your secrets or a parent who's betrayed your trust in some minor or major way, or maybe someone here has somehow had the worst happen to them where your spouse had been unfaithful and betrayed you. Imagine then for Joseph how he would have been feeling in this situation. At 18, having spent his life savings, having signed his name to a contract that was legally binding. Imagine what he would have been dreaming about and thinking about. Every dream he had of their life together, every hope of what his future would look like, building a life, starting a family, wedding celebration, wedding night, their home life, kids someday, all of it in an instant shattered. She was found to be with child. Joseph is faced with an unfair choice. And I want you to think about this and consider this for a second. It was brought on and precipitated by his creator who put him in this situation. As soon as Jesus shows up, he is demanding for allegiance and for followership from the womb, from conception. And the first person we see who could have been the king of his own life and said, I'm not doing this. I'm not following Jesus' way. I'm going to do my own thing is his adoptive father-in-law, his, his adoptive father, Joseph. I want you to think about the embarrassment that Joseph would have felt. Betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she's with child. How do you process that? How embarrassing do you think that would have been for him as a young man to feel this sense of betrayal, to be put in a lurch? I want us to consider too, what embarrassment is itself and how social embarrassment can work. I am the worst when it comes to embarrassing other people. Ask my wife. I mean, it depends. I kind of like embarrassing situations. I kind of can thrive on them. But I know for many of my friends and family who I put in embarrassing situations, they don't like it at all. One of the worst things that I do is say hi to people who I think look like people that I know and it's not them. 
And now it's not only like my immediate family that I grew up with, but it's now my own family and my own children, not even my wife, Andrea, who has to tell me it's not them. It's not them. Put your hand down. It's not them. It's my children who have to do that too. Daddy, no, daddy, no, no. I'll be waving my hand. Hey, they turn around. Oh, sorry. Wrong person. Thought you were someone else. And it's a near-death experience for everyone around me when it comes to social shame. <laughs> Dead on the floor. I'm so embarrassed, right? That's, that's social embarrassment. That internal feedback we get when we're put in horrible, awkward situations, right? But that's a very minor kind of embarrassment. That's an embarrassment that'll make you laugh and turn red a little bit. This kind of embarrassment is the kind of embarrassment where you want to change your last name and you want to leave town and never come back. Do we consider what it is that Joseph had to risk? The embarrassment of associating himself with a child that was not his. Joseph is put in a situation where he's having to deliberate. And it, and, it, and it actually tells us in verse 19, look with me, it says, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce, divorce her quietly. I want you to understand this for a second. Just here is righteous. He was an upstanding, upright man, full of character. We know that he, he adored Mary, that this wasn't just merely a legal contract. He adored her and he loved her because he was unwilling to put her to shame. And here's, here's what we have to understand. It says that he was a just man, a righteous man. And it says that in light of the fact that he had already re uh, decided, resolved in his mind to divorce her quietly. The law would have afforded him, afforded him the right ability. It would have permitted him to divorce her. Publicly, he could have shamed her, scornfully treated her. An adulterer many times was considered worthy of being stoned according to the law. And yet he was already willing to do it quietly in order to spare her the shame. And so here's what I want us to understand. Jesus consistently puts those who follow him in places where they have to choose whether or not they will follow and be obedient to him and risk the embarrassment of following him. You cannot follow Jesus and expect that at some point in your life, you will not be faced with what would otherwise be a shameful situation that you have to actually wear the shame because you follow him. It's an allegiance issue. It's an allegiance issue. When we consider the social shame that Joseph was willing to wear on Mary's behalf because of this Christ child, Shame is supposed to conform us and pressure us into this internal. So we have an external pressure that comes. We turn beet red and we, we literally want to just run away. But Joseph's willing to wear that shame and to own that embarrassment. He's willing to risk running the embarrassment for her sake and for this child. The challenge I want to lay down for some of you this morning when it comes to understanding Joseph's willingness to risk his embarrassment is this. First of all, there are some of you who would call yourselves Christians who may have never been put in a position to be unashamed, meaning you were risking embarrassment 
in order to stand for the truth, to stand for the gospel. If you can follow Jesus and never be put in a position where you will face social scorn or social shame, I just wonder whether or not you're following him and being obedient to him in all things. Think about this for a second. You're a young person. What do you mean you've never slept with someone? What do you mean you're waiting until you get married? Are you willing to risk the embarrassment of being faithful to the Lord? Why is it that you don't say the things that we say and talk the way that we talk and watch the things and listen to the things? Are you willing to answer those questions? Not just saying, uh, cause I don't want, cause I don't feel like it. I don't want to. Or are you willing to actually stand and say, because, because Jesus is my King and I have to be obedient to him. And even though a war rages inside of me, I will submit to his Lordship over my life. I will submit to the King. Continually in our lives, we will be faced with opportunities to either risk the embarrassment of being associated with Jesus or we can shrink back. Joseph heard from an angel, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. That fear that the angel is speaking about is a scared teenage boy who's looking at becoming a man who has no idea what to do next. He knew the law. He knew he could have divorced her, and yet he's willing to wear the shame. And now he has an opportunity to be obedient or disobedient. Name him Jesus. Joseph stands in the gap, stands in the pocket. He takes the hit. And he gives us an example of what someone who is willing to take off their own crown and lay it down looks like in order to be willing to actually allow Jesus to be the one who's crowned king over their life. Joseph not only risks the social embarrassment, he also risks all of his reputation. Again, in verse 18, if we think about this betrothal, think about not only the embarrassment, but this reputation. Again, he would have been expected and in fact, many ways demanded, commanded to divorce her. For, jo- for Jewish and Roman law, it didn't just permit divorce, and it's specifically Roman law. So we got to understand this. Jewish law was followed by the Jews who lived in this area at the time of Judea. But they were, they were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so he had really a twofold reputation to uphold. One of them was Jewish law. He would have been expected by many to divorce her. Why? Because if he divorces her, then people know it wasn't Joseph. If he doesn't divorce her, what he's saying is, I am allowing other people to think that it was me who transgressed against the law, even though it wasn't. And that will ruin your reputation. It goes beyond that. Because in Roman law at this time, if he doesn't divorce her, it was far worse. Roman law actually treated the husband who failed to divorce an unfaithful wife as someone who was a panderer, who was exploiting his wife as a prostitute. Think about some of his peers. You're going to divorce her, right? Joseph, come here, bud. You're going to divorce her, right? Please tell me you're going to divorce her. Dude, if you don't divorce her, everybody's going to think it's you. And the Romans, they're all going to think that you're You're treating her like she's a prostitute, man. You don't want that. It's going to ruin your reputation. Good luck getting a job. If we don't consider all that was 
put on Joseph. We miss understanding the humble example that he was. He was willing to risk his reputation among his peers, friends, family. One commentator, Dr. Craig Keener, says this, Mary and Joseph also chose to embrace shame to preserve the sanctity of God's call. Joseph's obedience to God cost him the right to value his own reputation. If you've ever thought to yourself, what are they going to think of me? What will they think of me when I say I'm a Christian? What is your current reputation? And what are they going to say of me when I say I'm a believer in Jesus and I follow him? Joseph is put in an unfair predicament. If he doesn't divorce her, his reputation is shattered. If he does divorce her, he may look just to everyone around, but internally he will know. A young man just starting to make his own way, lost all your money, your wife who you never fully married, got to consummate your marriage, gone. Good luck not only finding work, but any future spouse. If you don't divorce her, this is bad. Everyone's going to assume it's you. There's two challenges that arise for us this morning from Joseph's example of his willingness to risk his reputation and be obedient to the word that he heard from the angel. Are you willing to risk being known as a Christian? Here's the problem, I think, for some of you. Some of you call yourself a Christian conveniently on a Sunday morning, but Monday through Saturday, you're what I call a closeted Christian. Nobody knows. I do believe, but none of my friends know I believe. My faith exists when I'm about to take a test, submit a paper, or apply for a promotion, or try and get a new job. I pray a lot. I got tons of faith. But outside of that, it pretty much just exists on Sundays in these four walls. If you actually go to church. If. Some of you are such closeted Christians that I don't even think Jesus knows you're a Christian. And that's a problem. Remember that Christians did not firstly call themselves Christians. Christians were called Christians by others. Why? Because they looked like Jesus. If your friends wouldn't call you a Christian, I'm going to submit to you, maybe you should stop calling yourself a Christian. Joseph was willing to risk his reputation because he was already known as a just man. He was already known as a just man. He was upright according to the law. He was righteous, and so it guided his decisions. But he received a word from the Lord through an angel that guided him to give him the confidence to stand and risk the embarrassment and risk his reputation. The second aspect of risking your reputation is that you would be willing to risk others thinking less of you because of your obedience to God's word. Some of you who are known as believers, the encouragement comes to continue to live faithfully in accordance with the word that no matter what comes, you are willing to stand on the truth of the gospel and risk your reputation 
Lord, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about me. What matters is what you think about me because Jesus, you are my king. You're my king. Joseph gives us an example in his obedience that he was willing to risk embarrassment and his reputation. Are we, are we, to associate with Jesus is to be willing to risk embarrassment, to risk reputation, because Jesus demands allegiance and obedience. The third aspect of risk is that Joseph was willing to risk his relationship. Now, some would say this is a bit of speculation, but I want us to just understand that there's a scholarly debate on what happened with Joseph's family. We hear a little bit about Mary's family. Mary, we hear that when she entered into her aunt's house, Elizabeth, and Zechariah was a priest, that that Elizabeth knew that she was with child and that this child was the Lord. Elizabeth rejoices alongside of her, but that was, Zechariah was a priest. He had already been spoken to by an angel who was told the exact same thing. Elizabeth already knew why she was with child, but we're told nothing about Joseph. Well, I should say we're told very little. In Luke, in the gospel narrative of Jesus's birth, we actually read a little bit about Joseph's family in that he went to his hometown and there was no room for him and his teenage pregnant wife. I want you to consider that for a second. What does that tell us? It tells us enough that they did not have enough room, whether it was a guest room or a side room or whatever it was, there was not enough room for them. And this is why you could go back to your hometown You weren't celebrated like a hero. In fact, we're told that all Jerusalem was fearful and troubled that there was born the king of the Jews. So for Joseph's family, as he goes back to his hometown, it doesn't seem likely from the text that he was welcomed home with open arms. Imagine then for some of you who come here this time of year, getting ready to celebrate Christmas with your family in your hometown. And imagine then that there would be no room for you. It seems unlikely then that Joseph himself would have been warmly welcomed because he was willing to risk the embarrassment and the reputation. He was also also willing to risk his relationships. You see, some of us have had it been told to us that Jesus is just here to bring peace. He is, and he does for those who believe. And for those who do believe, we have an allegiance risk. Jesus himself speaks to this. In Matthew 10, he says something that is very countercultural, especially in regards to how we typically think about family and Christmas. Here's what he says. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 34 through 36, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Wait a minute, Jesus, you didn't, you must not know some of these Christmas carols we sing about you. He says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of his own household. Jesus, from conception, was already drawing lines of allegiance. And for some of you who have in your mind this Jesus who's kind of a wussy and a pushover and a hippie, peace and love, everybody just get along. 
The king of the universe entered his creation, not so he could just peace and love, so he could die because he was going to war for the souls of those who he came to save. Some of us have it in our minds that again, Jesus was somehow just passive, merely a weak prophet who said nice things that we could choose to follow. Jesus, as he's presented in scripture, brings immediate conflict into families, into friendships and relationships. Why? Because he asks for total obedience and followership. But it has to cause us to ask, why would we be willing to risk it all? I mean, if Joseph is willing to risk and willing to risk and willing to risk the embarrassment, his reputation, his relationships, what is it? Why would he be willing to do that? And we see this in verse 20. Look at verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1. It says, But as he considered these things, even though he had resolved to divorce her quietly, he was still thinking about it. It says, Behold, look, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph had to believe these propositional truths that seem totally illogical and absolutely impossible. This is where we see his obedience of faith. We see him have faith in the word of God that describes the gospel message. Your wife has conceived from the Holy Spirit. His name's going to be Jesus. Why? Because he has come to save people from their sins. His people will be saved from their sins. This is the gospel message that Joseph had to believe and be obedient to. He had to risk the embarrassment and shame. He had to risk his reputation and his relationships in order to embrace what would be the gospel proclaimed throughout all the earth until Christ Jesus comes and consummates his kingdom and rules over all in and in through and through as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here's the good news that Jesus is come to save his people from sins. But here's the bad news. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is the term for failing to be holy like God. Sin is disobeying God in our actions and in our attitudes and in our thoughts. This verse doesn't just tell you that you're a bad person or you're not perfect. It says that God is the only one who's perfect and you are a sinner in need of saving. Romans 3.23 furthers this point. Why is it that Jesus had to be born? Why is it he had to be born of a virgin? Why does all of this have to be true? Because Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Wages are what we earn. It's our payment. And because we have sinned and fallen short, our payment that we are due is death. The Bible tells us that we will die. Many of us Understand this. Everyone breathing here this morning knows that you're going to die. But the Bible explains that there is another death that is an eternal separation from the God who created you. 
Jesus had to come to bring right relationship between his father and those who he desired to become heirs and to rule and reign alongside of him and with him. And so he came, meek, born of a virgin. Joseph here believed this message. He had been looking forward to and longing for, seeing throughout the Old Testament that there would be a Messiah coming, and he was the one who got to name him Jesus as he was instructed. Joseph gives us an example here. He believed this message. He believed that Jesus was being born to Mary and that by accepting this message, he would be acting in obedience to the Lord. But here's the thing about accepting that message and receiving that son. Joseph knew all that he was going to risk in embarrassment and reputation and relationship. And at the end of it all, he said, it's worth it. It is worth it. Jesus is worth risking a thousand lifetimes to give up just to have eternal life in him. Jesus is worthy of it all. It's amazing that even while Jesus was developing in his mother's womb, he was already beginning to call people to have faith in him before he even spoke a word. Joseph being a righteous man, he being a just man, he had to make a choice on what he was being told. He had to choose whether or not to believe the word that was presented him. And it's reasonable to believe it cost him relationships, reputation. It cost him embarrassment because of the shame and the social scorn that he would have felt. Some of you here this morning should be challenged to not just associate yourself with Christ, but to boast in Christ alone. The gospel message doesn't make any sense to people who are unbelieving and who don't believe. Paul says this much in 1 Corinthians 1.23. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Think about what it is that we're saying we believe here. Jesus dying on a cross over 2,000 years ago and raising again to, to new life somehow has bearing over my life. Jesus being born of a virgin? How can I accept that? How can I believe that? God becoming man? To the Jews, this can't be the Messiah. They can't get over it. For Gentiles or every non-Jew, it's not just skeptical by definition. It's unbelievable. It's not hard to believe because it's illogical. How can God become man? How can God live? Is there a God live and die and then resurrect, that just doesn't happen. What you have to rely on when you consider the risk is the promise that was given to Joseph is that of Jesus, the Messiah. See, the four times that Joseph is presented with a dream from an angel instructing him, he obeys. He obeys. Four separate times. We see in the person of Joseph a person who is willing to take off their crown and set it down in order for Jesus to be crowned king. Are we those people? Paul tells us in Romans 8 what it means for those who would be willing to risk and associate themselves with Christ. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What Paul is saying is, it's worth it. It is worth the suffering and the risk of embarrassment, social scorn and shame, your reputation, your job, your family, your friends. Jesus is worth it all. Do we believe that? At the end of the day, we have to come to realize that the risk associated with believing in Jesus is this. It's only a risk without the right king. Jesus is the right king and the rightful king who's worthy of all of our praise, all of our surrender. He's worth being embarrassed for. In fact, we could boast in the Lord and know that if he sees our boasting, no matter what anybody else thinks about us, he's worth it. Jesus must be seen this Christmas season in your heart as the true king of Christmas. He is a sure bet because he is a firm foundation and he is worth all the risk of embarrassment, of reputation, and relationships. He is our king. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for giving us an example to look at and to emulate as we consider Joseph and his obedience and his willingness to risk everything in order that we would see you, Lord, crowned as King of the Jews. Lord, I pray this morning for those who do not live out what they say they claim. I pray, Lord, that you would convict their hearts, that they would be bold, and that they would be willing to risk it all to speak the power of the gospel. I, I pray, Lord, for encouragement for those who have risked and have given up jobs, relationships. Lord, their reputation because they're willing to take a stand for you, for the truth, for you being the King of Kings. We pray, Lord, as we continue on in this Christmas season, Lord, that we would truly have a Merry Christmas because all of us recognize that you are the true King of Christmas. And it's in Jesus' name we said amen.